Your Heart Grow podcast is a place for anyone who wants room at the table and is ready to open themselves to seeing the world a little bit differently. Now it's time to let your heart grow. Hello, everyone. Welcome, friends. So today we have our first guest, and I'm really excited to have you meet Cheryl. Um, Cheryl and I met through um, Instagram, through a, a mutual group, and I think that she just has a very powerful and very moving story that can help guide and direct so many of us. So let's start out first, Cheryl, by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little about you, your family, and anything else you want to share. Hey, um, hi. <laughs> I um, I'm married. I have four kids and a fur baby, and we also just barely adopted a rabbit. Uh, it's a little chaotic here sometimes. <laughs> Um, but I love it. Um, my kids are great. I've got, we've got from 10 to 17. So bracing myself for uh, that next step in life of having one actually leave the nest in the year. I've heard that's a hard one. My youngest is four and my oldest is eight. So I still have a ways. So I feel for you there. I know I'll sob. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's, it's true. What everyone says it, you blink and it's there, but, um, but she's awesome. I'm excited. So um, I'm currently training for a full Ironman. First time doing that. They saw that. Intense. <laughs> I can imagine because isn't the Ironman, doesn't it cover like multiple types of training? So like yeah. running, swimming and biking. Swimming and, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've done lots of triathlons before, but this is my first Ironman's like the big, it's long all yeah. day kind of thing. So uh, so that takes up a lot of my time, but I also, I homeschool right now, one of my kiddos and I, um, I have a degree as a physical therapist assistant, currently not working with that. Just too many other things going on. Yes, I understand that one. So very cool. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit first about your Instagram account, because that's how we met and what helped me learn a little bit more about your story. So let's start with that. And then we'll kind of go a little bit into your history and like your diagnosis and things like that. Okay. Yeah. So my Instagram account, I started in 2018. Um, I felt really strongly prompted. Um, like one night it actually just came that I was supposed to start this account and just be very transparent in my journey. Um, We'll get more into kind of where I was at with that. I had not been transparent for most of it. <laughs> I kept it very private. Um, and just kind of wrestled with uh, not wanting to do that. Just feeling, one, I just those things are hard to talk about, okay, right? Like mental health is has been taboo for a long time. Um, also, it's hard to be that vulnerable. Um, also I have a hard time committing to things anyway. <laughs> and just also that uh, you know, when you're always like, there's a million other people who are better suited to this and even are already doing it. Like I know I'm not the first person to start talking about suicide and mental health. Um, but the spirit was very persistent, kept me up all night, half night <laughs> until I came up with an Instagram handle, um, which was it's see me, not the stigma, because I I looked back and looking over my life stigma, honestly, my own, but then that of other people, um, really inhibited me from getting help for a long time. And, and it's still a struggle. And I see it as a struggle in, in the lives of people that reach out to me, people I care about, um, like almost every day. (laughs) 
So. No, I think it's true. So um, for those that are listening, if you might not know this, that I was diagnosed with depression when I was 17. Um, so I've had some similarities in my journey that Cheryl has, and I really related with this. But sick is a big thing. Like we've, I do feel like the discussion for mental health has been much more open, especially since COVID. And people are becoming more aware, but there is still that stigma or belief like, well, if you just try a little harder to be happy, or if um, you're just like letting it get to you, you need to be stronger, braver, whatever the phrase is. And I'm sure you've heard that. Um, So I can understand like the shame or the feelings of like, I don't want people to know that about me and feel that. I think that's a perfect um, handle. And I understand the idea too, that, oh yeah, there's other people doing it. But the thing is, I think that each of us has an individual story and an individual perspective that maybe the way you tell it um, helps people relate. And um, one of the things I really love about how you share right now is you show the good and the bad. So if you're having a hard day, you don't hide that. You're like, this is what I'm dealing with right now. Do you feel like that has made people feel more like they can reach out to you and relate with you or? Well, that's a good question. I, um, honestly, because for so long, things were bad. I was never sharing good days. When I first started sharing good days, I actually felt guilty. Oh. Uh, because, because so many of the people that I know that I've come in contact with through this account and just by being vocal about it, don't have good days. I don't have a lot of good times. Uh, and I felt really guilty that I was, had found stuff that was helping me and that I was feeling well. Um, I also worried that I would lose followers, that people were not interested in my story if I was doing well. Oh. Um, <laughs> And at some point it was like, well, if I'm being transparent, I need to be honest about everything. And it's not really about getting followers, right? It's about um, just helping people understand. Because like you said, I think my story is relatable for a lot of people, maybe not a hundred percent of it, but I think there's so much of it that people can relate to in themselves or in their own, or in like someone that they know. Um, so now I do think that it helps and it's helped people. Um, I've been surprised at how many people who don't necessarily struggle with mental health issues on their own, but love someone who does, mm-hmm. who have found a lot of hope in it to see that I went from years and years of just really bad days, to put it lightly, um, to now where I'm doing well and also where I have like so much of a better handle on on even the bad days, right? So, so now I think as I've as I've been doing it for a few more years, it's, I, um, have been able to see more how people, and I hope too, that it brings hope to people who are struggling, who are in, you know, like, uh, I, where I had over 10 years where it was pretty bad most of the time and six years where it was like solid suicidal thoughts every day. And, um, and so I hope that I can connect with people who are in that place to be like, hey, it is worth holding on. Not because every day is good. No. But because good comes. And I'm to a point now where in my life where not every day is good, but there's good every day. I love how you, I love how you said that. 
like there is good every day. It's sometimes just recognizing it. Yeah. Um, let's start out a little bit with the beginning of your journey with depression. Um, we talked a little bit about how like your childhood was kind of a traditional childhood. You thought you had the perfect life, like when somebody asked you. So what what kinds of symptoms or um, experiences or feelings led you to the point where you finally were like, okay, something's wrong and I need help. Yeah, there's not a lot that's noticeable from my childhood. Um, other than the fact that I was like really able to control my emotions really well. If I had a bad day, I didn't tell anyone what was going on. I never like accepted help for that and, um, kind of shut everybody out and told them I'd be better the next day. And I was better the next day. Right. So I thought I was pretty on top of things with my mental health. And then, um, when I was a junior, gosh, <laughs> I was a junior in college, um, I was engaged and working full time, going to school full time, planning a wedding. Um, and I started taking birth control and, and now I feel like people talk openly about, um, how birth control, like shifting your hormones like that mm. can cause depression, suicidal thoughts, like a change. Right. But, um, when I first talked to my doctors about it back then, everyone was like, Oh no, 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 no. Birth control would never do that. I don't know why we're so defensive of our pharmaceuticals. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was probably like, that was one of the first things, right. Is like one of the first times where stigma confronted me that they were afraid to even go there where I was like, look, I've never had suicidal thoughts my entire life. And within three weeks of starting birth control, I had my first, it wasn't necessarily suicidal. I just, something went wrong in my life. And my thought was to go down to like the bad part of town and hope that something awful happened to me, you know? And I like pretty immediately was like, what the heck? That is a weird thought. And I was able to put it aside and move forward in a more way that I was used to in a healthier way, you know, but it was so foreign. Like, I still, I remember that, even though that was now like almost 20 years ago. Um, anyway, so yeah, so that happened. Then, um, I got married and, uh, and we were both working full-time, both going to school full-time. Like some parts of our background are very similar and some parts are very different. (laughs) Isn't that how marriage is? You're melding two completely different lives into one. So it was like some of the areas where like, I grew up in a home where you avoid confrontation and you expect the other person to kind of uh, put your needs first. It may be even almost to like in a harmful, you know, like excessively, whereas his was kind of more like uh, take charge and take care of yourself and, you know. Like independence and and like, yeah, for yourself. The combination made for really rough because I was like expecting things to be done and said that weren't happening. And he was just kind of like, well, if you need those things, you would ask for them and kind of like stepping on my toes with things, you know, anyway. So it was just this like, uh, just a difficult time. <laughs> and it does compare. I mean, it really is like for everybody. But then when you're already having the, the thoughts that you had started having, yeah. I'm sure that that fed into it. Yeah. And I was severely depressed and a hundred percent in denial because I knew (laughs) as a cute 21 year old, that depression was not a real thing and that I just needed to have more faith and think more positively. Like anytime my husband would be like, I think something's wrong, you know, because he fell in love with this like bubbly, charismatic, confident girl. And by the time we got married, she was kind of 
lost. And, um, and so he would try, you know, and be like, I think you need help. And I was just always like, oh, I think that those two things, I repeated them over and over to him, to myself. I just need to think more positively and have more faith. Like I, I knew that that would fix things because of the stigma against depression, stigma against uh, antidepressants, you know, like all these things terrified me. And um, anyway, so things got bad. I got pregnant. <laughs> things got worse. So bring in another hormone change. <laughs> I, and that was one thing I did notice when I went off birth control because I got pregnant. That was intentional. Um, so I went off birth control, but it didn't take very long to get pregnant. So like that month, where I was not on birth control and I was not pregnant, I felt more like myself than I had at oh, this, wow. you know, for like a, over around a year at this point, because we did get pregnant fairly fast. Um, anyway, and then my pregnancy was really hard. It was really hard. I had graduated college. I didn't get a job in my degree because it was fitness and wellness management. And I was like, nobody wants a pregnant, like personal trainer, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ran at that point in life. So I, I was, we, we went across the country for an internship that he did. And I worked at a deli. Um, and the family that owned that deli was in the, it was in the bottom floor of our apartment in Connecticut. It was like, we lived on, I think we were on the 10th floor. I don't remember how tall it was. Anyway, um, they just like adopted me. My husband was working crazy hours with this internship and gone all day. And sometimes they would have activities for them at night. These were young college guys. So none of them were married except yeah. him. So nobody there was thinking like, oh, we should do stuff for families, right? It was just him. Uh, and this cute family just like adopted me in and took care of me. They would take me to their house for dinner and for meals. They took me out for pizza, like one of the top 10 pizza places in the country, burned all the lists. Anyway, you know, just like all these great things and, and, um, and they don't know. I like I've talked to them. I don't know if I ever fully told them just what a gift they were because I would go home after work and be alone for hours. Oh. And and I tried to fill my time. We didn't have TV. <laughs> and this oh, was back in the olden days. Yeah, you'd work yeah, across the country. Friends. We didn't have a phone. We didn't have a dishwasher. We didn't have a microwave. Like we were in this little tiny studio apartment. I read books. I read lots and lots of books. Um and, uh, but that, so they were like my social interaction mm-hmm. and my cute husband when he would get home, if we weren't fighting. <laughs> well, cause you said things were really good and sometimes they were not. So yeah. Anyway, so we went back, I had the baby, um, fast forward, like things did not really get better when she was nine months old. By now he graduated and we had moved permanently to Connecticut and, um, we were in a town that was like college students and Polish people who are super sweet, but there, not a lot of them spoke English. So again, I was very isolated. And my husband now was studying. He had to take a big exam to get his CPA license after he graduated. And one night we had a big fight, not feeling well. I had a headache. Anyway, I ended up overdosing. I just, I remember just sitting in my daughter's room and thinking she deserves better than this. I overdosed and I don't know. I mean, I guess it was probably the spirit. (laughs) Something helped me like humble enough because I was so mad, uh, but to go tell my husband. And I insisted that I had not taken enough to do any permanent like 
real harm. Um, he ignored me and took me to the ER. Good for him. <laughs> and, um, and I guess I'd say that's where I got my diagnosis of depression. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they helped with my overdose. Uh, not a fun thing. I spent the night and they sent me home just with a referral and appointment for a therapist. Uh, and I still think like that's just wild to me. Like now knowing what I oh, know. Yeah. Now, now you'd be committed for at least like a mandatory I time. should have gone to a behavioral health unit. Um, yeah. And been there and gotten a little more help. But anyway, so that's when the diagnosis came. Okay. So you mentioned that they gave you a therapist. So did you start therapy medication at that point or what yeah. happened? So I can't remember exactly what her like title was because um, she could prescribe medicine. So she practitioner or I don't know, but, or maybe a psychiatrist. She, and I met, I only remember meeting two or three times. I remember her being irritated about my daughter's nap schedule and pushing hard for me to get a job. And I, um, had just grown up with a mom who was home and had always been taught that, that that was where I should be is be home with my kids. More traditional, yeah, yeah, which I 100%. There's so much value in being home with their kids. Oh, I agree. Um, but I was like completely closed off to the idea of a different lifestyle that maybe doing something that would help my mental health help would actually be more beneficial for my child, you know. Um, anyway, the thing with that therapist after we met a few times. One, I think it was a Saturday. It was a weekend. I remember things got really bad. I was feeling suicidal. I called her. Uh, I She had an emergency line, but I didn't feel worthy of calling the emergency line. Okay. So I, didn't. I find it interesting that you use the phrase worthy, that you didn't feel worthy to use it. Like, so that meaning that where you were wasn't as bad as somebody else, kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning or... I just said this by this time I had grown to hate myself so much and think so like beyond little of myself. I just tried to take up as little space as okay. And so I, it wasn't even necessarily if someone else needed her more, it was like, maybe she was eating dinner or maybe she just didn't want to be bothered or whatever. Your words was so small that anything else that could be occupying that time or space was more important. Yes. Okay. It was a rough, it was a rough spot. Sadly, I actually, this is something I can relate with from my past. Um, I think a lot of people can. I think with depression and for those that may be listening that have never had to experience depression first, lucky you. Second, the brain tends to distort your self-interpretation like how you view yourself your feelings are like I feel like you don't fully interpret your feelings the same like I always felt numb and um so I could see where you would feel that like that there's something like I I am such a worthless part of the world right now that everything else would matter more than me right now yeah yeah so I just called her regular line left a message she never called back ever oh my (laughs) Hannah I'm like what how do you not 
even call, like I have therapists now who, if they haven't heard from me for a little while, they'll just reach out and just be like, Hey, I'm just checking in. How are you doing? Right? Like blows my mind that she would have gotten that voicemail and a not call me back right away. If not that day, right? Maybe she didn't listen to that line. That's why she had an emergency line. I get that, but that she didn't call back on Monday or the next week or ever at some point. Yeah. Um, How did that experience impact how you view therapy at that point? I was, I could imagine. Yeah. Like I would feel that that would validate the feeling that you were already having that you weren't worth anything. No, because now the person, the one person that I was paying to care about me didn't care. And so I was never going to do therapy again. And I knew even more solidly now that I really was not worth anyone's time or attention, let alone like affection or love, you know, because you were paying this person basically in your mind to do that. Yeah. So I could see where that would be very detrimental and really make an impact on the feelings that you were feeling. Yeah, it was. She had prescribed an antidepressant and I like kept it in my car. Trying to talk myself into being brave enough to fill it. But I was so scared of antidepressants. I can't even like pinpoint. We just, like I said, I just, it was, uh, this was such a foreign concept for me. Even now that I had this like official diagnosis, it was so hard for me to come around and accept it. Mm-hmm. And also to think that like, I was, I think in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm so broken. I have to take medication. Even though like normal conditions that anybody had to take, you know, for blood pressure or diabetes or whatever, I would have never been like, what a broken person you are. Okay. That's exactly how I felt. I was like, why do I need to take a pill to be happy? Like everybody else just gets up in the morning and is happy. Why do I have to take a pill? Yeah. To put a smile on my face or make myself feel normal. Yeah. No, exactly. Because that's how I was. I don't know about you, but I resisted meds for probably the first five to 10 years, like on and off. Because I'm like, oh, I'm fine. And then people, I stopped taking them and my mom or friends were like, okay, you're not fine. (laughs) But I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then it would get so bad. Well, I never filled the prescription because of what happened with her. Then I wanted nothing, nothing to do with that. You're like, we're done. Yeah. It was like, nope, I'm going to figure this out on my own, you know? So yeah. Okay. So after that happened and I'm get, do you have this beautiful little munchkin? who's very young and what happened next? So the therapist isn't there. You're still feeling this way. Like nothing's changed inside. How did you go forward or what happened next in the story? We basically lived in survival mode. Uh, And there were good times, uh, but there was a lot of hard, a lot of dark. I, um, I'm trying to remember we. We just kind of found things. We would find things that would help a little bit, like a different mindset or a book or a supplement, right? But nothing ever lasted. Um, And every time it felt like I would get worse than I had been before. So fast forward, we moved to Nebraska. I got pregnant with our third child. I had another in Connecticut. Also had really, really bad postpartum depression after him. Actually, I, maybe I shouldn't skip that because I did finally take medication while I was pregnant with him. I was okay, so suicidal uh, that my doctor said, 
you're more, cause I was like, what's it going to do to my baby now? And he said, oh, you're at yeah. higher risk to your baby, the way you're feeling than this medication is. So I took medication um, and I felt like it helped while I was pregnant. And then um, for the first six weeks after his birth, so he came fast and furious, <laughs> did not have an epidural. I thought I was going to die. And I had PTSD undiagnosed. But now that I know more about it, like every time I close my eyes, I would be back there freaking out. I like legitimately thought I was going to die. And uh, he was nine pound baby. <laughs> That's a big boy. <laughs> anyway, and he didn't sleep. He just ate all the time. So I was exhausted. He and he just continued to he was massive. He was colicky. He only wanted to be held. Even when I held him, he would cry. Um, I think I had postpartum psychosis. I had a really hard time not. I wanted to hurt him. Uh, which of course I was like, what is wrong with me as a mom? We had constant company for the first six weeks of his life. So, so add to all this mess already that I was then trying to pretend like everything was perfect, keep my house clean, cook meals, you know, go, everybody wanted, cause we live back East. So people who came to visit were like, let's go to this place and this place and this place. Right. You know, so it was like just exhaustion and chaos. And by the time everyone left, I was just a wreck and I would call my husband sobbing and holding this screaming baby and he would plead with me please go put him down and I was because I would be like I'm gonna squeeze him to death and he was like you have to go put him down I was like but then he'll cry harder I mean like it sounds crazy it was so, crazy I it, it is because the brain isn't working correctly yeah um unfortunately I heard a story recently of someone close to me who has a sibling whose wife had postpartum psychosis after their second and unfortunately um she died by suicide and when the baby was about a year and it is it's not normal it's it's not something that mo anybody that's a parent would ever imagine doing and so i think to me that shows how scary that would be too like you already had a child that you love and then you get the second one and you're having these feelings yeah um i i do want to just take a moment and point out that um while not everybody has major depressive disorder, many women do suffer with postpartum depression that can be very extreme. And so just um, if you are feeling that way or you have a family member or friend to just be aware and watch for them, because it's there's an organization called the Emily Effect that specifically specializes in postpartum depression. And so I just wanted to kind of highlight that, that it's not an uncommon thing. Like for you, it was heightened by the fact that you already had major depressive disorder. Yes. But um, many people do suffer with that. Yeah. And no one was talking about it with the Emily effect. Yeah. It's huge. It's so important. I, so that was the thing. I mean, people would be like, oh, baby blues or whatever, you know, yes. that's, not, that's not what this was. Anyway, so that, so I had that, I went off of my antidepressant because I felt like it was part of the problem. And I actually did improve after I got off of it. And I just want to like, spoiler alert, my story is not meant to tell anyone that medication is bad. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't react well to it. So um, anyway, so then fast forward to that third baby. Again, my doctor, this time I had a really, really great OBGYN. I had not, awesome. before that, with my other two, I'd been with big groups and hadn't ever really gotten to know anyone doctor. This one, I loved her. And she... I had shared a bit of my history with her and she just said, 
will you please take an antidepressant after this baby? Because you have postpartum depression like this. We know this. So I did. Um, and again, kind of seemed like it helped. Uh, he was the darlingest, sweetest little baby that helped a ton. And then, um, about six months after that, I had evolved into this rage monster. I was mm-hmm. like, anger does not even touch it to like, that's all I can say is like, I was in a rage so much of the time. It did not take very much to throw me off. I was so angry and that is so not me. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the psychiatrist and said, I got to get off this medication. And he said, if you go off of it, you'll just need to be back on it in another few weeks at a higher dose. Cause your body will have adjusted. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, this is making me sick. Like I am not okay. And he said, if you go off of that medication, get out and never come back. And I okay. said, done. Never coming back. I so you've had two therapists that are basically. Well, this was a psychiatrist. Well, but yeah. same type of thing. Like yeah. mental health professionals. Yeah. So the first one basically disappeared and the other one's like, okay, well, I'm done. Yeah. Well, yeah. sit with me. Well, they were willing to talk to me about like other classes of medication. Like I, and again, it's stuff that I know now, but at the time I didn't even have the idea to ask for things because I didn't know. You didn't know. And I trusted these people and it was like, this is your area of expertise. So I, I just didn't go in with any thought of my own. Right. Except that I had to get off of it. I knew it was making me sick. So I weaned myself off of it. I did start to feel better. Fast forward again, had another baby. <laughs> And so this is number four, right? Number four. And we knew this one. We knew we were supposed to have another baby. Um, But we knew that she was our last. We knew I would not survive another pregnancy. Um, Anyway, my postpartum got really bad. I actually was hospitalized. I was suicidal while I was pregnant with her. I had my first like official behavioral health hospitalization while I was pregnant with her. Not the best program. Kept me alive. But it didn't help. Hey, that right there is success. It's true. But I didn't leave with any tools or hope or anything. It was just like, well, that sucked. So there was I, really no coping and like te- yeah. techniques and stuff to help you yeah. once you left. Yeah. So after I had her, um, she and I had this like deep connection. And when I was with her, I was okay. Uh, I think she's the first baby that they let me hold like before they cut the umbilical cord and other stuff. And I've read things now about the bonding that takes place with that skin to skin contact. And it was much, everything about it was a much more natural, much more healthy, holistic birth. That's a story for a whole different podcast, obviously. <laughs> but, um, but I do think part of our postpartum issues are the ways that we have babies delivered in our modern society. But anyway, so I bonded with her. Things were better when I was with her, but overall my mental health was just continued to deteriorate. So when she was, um, just a few months old, my husband just came to me finally and just, he was exhausted. We, by this time, our third child, that cute, sweet baby has autism. And we didn't know it at the time, but we were dealing with a lot with him. And, um, our house was chaos and a nightmare and we were putting on this per- perfect face to the outside world, but we were uh, just broken. We were a mess and 
he just came to me and said, I can't do this. You have to get help. You have to go see someone. So I finally relented because he had brought that up again over the years. And I was always like, no, remember how that went? <laughs> like, That's not going to go well. Yeah. And so um, he, so I started seeing a new therapist this time, someone who's a member of our faith. And he brought Christ and the atonement. Sorry. No. Um, and it was everything that I needed. And he was so gentle. Um, although I left every session ticked off at him because he was the one who finally started helping me work through stuff and get to the heart of things. And it hurt. He was hitting those chords. Yeah. He helped me see that really the foundation of it was just this feeling that I knew I wasn't lovable, that I wasn't worthy of love. And that I was constantly trying to prove to the people around me that I was while simultaneously knowing that I wasn't. And so it was this really awful. <laughs> like you're proving to yourself that you're not worth anything, but you're trying to prove to everybody else that you are. Yeah. So you're fighting this double-sided yeah. battle. And, and this fear that people who thought that they loved me would one day realize, realize the like, truth. Be like, Oh, she's dirt, you know? So that was, so he was a huge blessing. And one of the things that he said, I was so resistant <laughs> because this, by this point in time, I think this had been going on. Uh, yeah, for, for, let me think. I depression started in like 2003. My baby was born in 2012. So we're at like nine, 10 years now. And, um, and I had tried at this point, I had tried a few different antidepressants. I, um, had tried, like I said, all these different life plans and everything. And I just felt like nothing helped. And, um, so he would offer different suggestions and I would, I was so resistant to everything because I finally realized, I don't know if I realized it in the moment, but, uh, I was terrified to not, to imagine a life of not being depressed because that was all I knew. Like my whole adult life, essentially I had been depressed. I didn't know how to be a wife, a mom, an adult, you know, without, without, yeah. And most of my friends at this point. This was telling me they'd known, which they didn't know I was depressed. I wasn't talking about it. I think I occasionally would be like, oh yeah, I deal with depression, but I'm great today. Like everything's fine now, whether it was or not. Right. Like I never would share what was going on in the moment. So really like, even though they were your friends and they care about you, they didn't really know the real Cheryl. They didn't know who you really were. No, because they already knew that like I was putting on this facade of being a likable person. Yeah. They knew how much I struggled. If they knew that I thought about suicide on the regular basis if they knew that I had ever thought about hurting one of my kids if they knew that I hated life that I knew they would hate me you know they would realize the truth that like I was not worth and then they would disappear walk away realize that you weren't worth exactly what you were they would know that yeah so um he just looked at me one day and he said, as I was shooting down all of his ideas of, you know, things to try, uh, he just said, Cheryl, if nothing changes, nothing changes. It's so simple, but it was exactly what I needed to hear that day. I went home and it's like, he's right. Like I want, I don't want to be this forever. I have to be brave enough to try being well. And that was shocking to me to realize that I was scared of not being depressed, <laughs> but I was because it was because that's what you now. have known now for 
at least 10 years. It sounds like I think it was about 10 years at this point. Yeah. And it, that was the only way you knew how to be like to do life, how to be married. Cause it started about the time you were engaged. So. Yeah. Um, I will say, I find it remarkable that you were, you kept trying therapists. I personally am a huge advocate for therapy. I even studied psychology with the goal of becoming a therapist, but after what you had been through with the first two, how rewarding it must have been to find someone who finally seemed to know what he was doing, was willing to like really dig in there. And, and like you're worth finding out what is causing all of these things. Yeah, he was, he's just a, a great human being mm-hmm. and he really helped me a lot. That's amazing. So, about what time frame was this? Like how long ago? So this, I saw him, it started in 2012. Um, I think uh, 2014. It might've been 2013. Uh, <laughs> I've done some treatments that have affected my memory. So this gets oh, yes. here, but he, things got really bad. I was very suicidal. Um, and he said, this was 2013. He said, you, he called my husband to come down to the appointment with me. And he said, you can't leave here today unless you either find a new therapist, because I feel like I'm not helping you um, go to the ER. Or if you will try this, if you can promise to be safe overnight, <laughs> if you'll enroll in this partial hospitalization program in the morning where I would go during the day, I would be there for about 10 hours a day. And, but I would get to go home at night. And my first uh, experience being hospitalized, like I said, was not super positive. So, so I picked that option. Um, and, uh, it was good. They had us do different types of therapy. I made some friends, one in particular. Um, it was just really nice to have someone who could relate to what I was going through. Um, even though like our, he was more like crippling anxiety. Um, but just, he became just a good, a good family friend. There's nothing sketchy about this friendship. No, And, but the two other things happened. One was that one day we were watching a video in there about bipolar disorder. And I found out that there were two types of bipolar disorder. I only knew about the more stereotype one. Um, but type two is predominantly depression, like 40 days of depression for like one day of what they call hypomania, which is like a slightly elevated mood, you know, like more elevated, but not like what you see in the movies or what you hear about or what you think of when you think bipolar disorder. And I thought maybe that's me because every now and then over these years of depression, I would have this breakthrough where I would be out with my friends and I would feel so good and charismatic. And I would set these really big goals for myself. And so I thought maybe, maybe that's what that is. And this is why also the thing that I found out is that antidepressant medications make it worse. And so I was like, okay, everything is adding up for me. Um, the other okay. thing that happened. Okay. I was just going to say, like, I think it's important to recognize that you were listening to yourself. I think that's what, like, I mean, I thought I was fine without meds and obviously it wasn't, but I think that sometimes you have to listen to your, to yourself and what your body's telling you. And it sounds like you did. And you knew that every time you tried one, something wasn't right. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, so when I got out of there, when I finished, um, I found a new doctor and, um, I talked to my therapist and he was like, maybe he was a little skeptical about it. He said, I'm not, you know, opposed to it. Just, I haven't seen this. And I was like, well, I never shared these good days. Cause I did feel like they were a little off maybe. And I was worried about something, something else was wrong with me. Right. So here's my stigma showing up again. Right. Like I have all this stuff wrong with me. I don't need anything else to add to the list. <laughs> so, so I started seeing, um, a new doctor and, um, and he agreed with the diagnosis. So he put me on, um, so we started a whole new class of medications. And by this time I had met enough people that had been helped by antidepressants that I had come around on the idea of medication, but I knew it didn't help me. Right. But now I was like, this is a whole new class of medication. This is going to fix me. And I really did go into it with every expectation and every hope. I think this was like the most hopeful I'd felt in forever. And, um, so I started some mood stabilizers and some other stuff, uh, and it didn't help. (laughs) So we tried some others in the meantime, things were still, and so um my husband got a new job and we we moved to utah to be because we both have family there and he was just like we need help we need need the support some things that you could get that can help us this is just getting to be too much so uh the move was really really hard on me um and i ended up being hospitalized i think we'd only been there for a couple months and um, that program, so this is uni university neuropsychiatric mm-hmm. Institute, yes. um, here in Utah, and they have this phenomenal program. It's they amazing. Yeah. Incentives for me to come out of my room and they, um, like you start out in your hospital clothes, but like, if you participate in things, you can have your normal clothes back and just other things that were like my previous experience had been very shaming, um, and something that like, for, I even had some PTSD after that for a while. Um, the, this was good. And they had lots of different types of therapy and lots of people that met with me and talked with me and helped me. And um, one that even helped me through because even my, my idea of how worthless I was even extended to my depression. I was like, I don't, I sat in there and listened to these people who had been through really, really hard lives, abuse and poverty and, you know, homelessness and and head injuries and whatnot. And I was, I said, I don't deserve to be here. Not meaning like I'm better than this. Meaning no, but I don't even deserve depression because nothing bad happened to me in my life. But I still feel this way. And yeah. And he was like, all those things that they went through. So what's wrong with me that I feel this way? Yeah, and he just goes, that's not how this works. Like just straight was like, yeah, that's not, but, you know, anyway, so that was like a really, that was another like helpful idea to start percolating in my brain. It would be a while before I could fully accept that as truth, but it was a good, it was like eye opening to hear a health professional say, that's not how this works, you know? So, um, anyway, so it was really helpful and, uh, came out of that and was not okay. <laughs> I think I had like a good day. And so I went home and then crashed again really fast. I actually didn't home because we were still living with my parents while we were waiting to move into our house. And then they had me start doing a treatment called ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. 
uh, which is like modern day shock therapy. That's where a lot of my memory loss comes. Mm. Um, I was basically a zombie. I hardly, I lost most of that year. I don't remember very much of that time. I do mm. think it kept me alive. I don't regret doing it. I did have to come to terms with the fact that there's a lot of my baby's lives that I don't remember, but, oh, that would be so hard. Um, but it kept me alive for a month and a half. And then they were like, this is too detrimental to you. Like, this is not a sustainable treatment. So, so there was one other treatment that you did after that one yeah. that you found some success with, like not a cure, because there really isn't a cure for depression, but that you found helps you um, to get to a place where it was easier to handle and cope and look at your situation better. Yeah. After you did the ACT, they put me back on a ton of medications. And I realized that they were all making me sick because I'd been tracking my symptoms on an app on my phone and my doctor helped me not ended up in the hospital again, <laughs> but, uh, came out of that with some goals and some hope. And yes. And so then after that, I was like, okay, I've now tried like every medication under the sun and nothing helps. I, um, went back to school. We thought that would help. And it did. Or while I was in school and I graduated and I went back to work and everything just started getting worse again. So yeah, so now we're in 2018, the fall of 2018. Um, I knew I was going to die. Like I knew it. I just had come to realize that for me, my depression was a fatal illness and um, it wasn't a matter of if it was, it was when. Matter when. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly looking for a good time when my family wouldn't have I didn't want it to ruin holidays or birthdays or, you know, other stuff. It would have the least amount of impact. Yeah. Like, like it's going to have a soft impact ever. Right. But that was where I was at at that time. But at, um, at this point, Cheryl, just let me, I want people to kind of understand what kind of thought process goes in your mind when you reach the point where you believe that suicide is the option. Like that's where you should go. Um, were you doing this because, like, first off, did you tell anybody that you were considering suicide? So after my first overdose, um, my husband and I made a pact that if I was having suicidal thoughts, I would tell him. Um, I was terrified of the word suicide. I thought that if I said it out loud, it would make it happen. I was so scared of it. And so... I would tell him things like, I'm having a really bad day today. And shockingly, he did not equate that with suicide because he's thinking, yeah, we're fighting. I'm having a bad day today too, right? You know, but we did, we did come around to where he, I still wouldn't say suicide, but I could say like, today is not good or, you know, like that he could understand. Um, I still, I still couldn't really, it was hard to talk about. I, uh, in 2014, a friend of mine reached out from high school, had a website and she said, somehow she knew. So I think I had started sharing little bits again. I'm sorry. This is the time period that's so mushed in my brain, but no, and no uh, apologies. She asked if I would share my story. Oh, I remember this was when I got diagnosed with bipolar two. And when I got diagnosed with bipolar two, I actually was like, I'm tired of hiding this. I'm going to share it. So somehow we connected. She asked me to write an article about that. And I did. 
Um, and I was overwhelmed with the response I got. Um, just people, people that I didn't know were super supportive, but also because she was a friend from high school, uh, mm-hmm. it, it caught the eye of a lot of people that I hadn't stayed in touch with for, you know, for years, um, from high school who'd only known this like funky, perfect life me. Right. Uh, that I thought, Oh, everyone would be so disappointed to know. Mm-hmm. Um, they were so kind. Everyone was so supportive. Everyone was just, you know, by the end, it's so great that you're so here. Look at how strong you are. Things that like, I couldn't, I couldn't own these things. That was hard for me to accept people's, uh, kind Days of or, yeah. Um, but I did feel it. Right. And it was so contrary to what I had expected. It was the same thing with my first overdose. My husband had been our whole marriage. Like you've got to tell your parents, you've got to tell your parents. And I was positive that I would disappoint my dad and that my mom would like, I felt like I was her go-to person when she was having a hard day. Well, she would never come to me after that. Right. Again, was not the case at all. Right. So that's kind of been as I unfolded telling being more vocal about it. Um, but I still like could not use that word. It was like always euphemism. And uh, so then people didn't really understand just how bad it was. Yeah. Know. I think people didn't know exactly. I mean, when you say you overdose, people get the idea, right? But um yeah. So I did it. I didn't and here's the thing too. I started um I was doing I started getting involved with this group called Depression Bipolar Support Alliance and I helped facilitate support group meetings there. And I advocate for speaking up and getting help. And, mm-hmm. but it's still really hard, even, even now. And I have now through Instagram and with this group and other, and like American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, and I, I have reached a point where I'm very comfortable using the word suicide. I, you know, wise, wise Dumbledore for any Harry Potter fans who says a fear of, the name is greater than the fear. Increases of the fear of the yeah. you know, like wait, that's not coming out right of the thing itself. Oh, it's on Harry Potter, right? And <laughs> and it really is true about suicide. We're so scared to say it. I remember sitting in a DBSA meeting uh, one time with an, a father and his adult daughter. She's living with him, and reminded me a lot of myself. And. He, she had said, I can't really share. I'm just here tonight. And I said that, get that, I get that. Right. So he and I were having this conversation. It was a small group that night. And he said, how can I help her? I see her struggling and I'm so scared, so scared. And I said, when you see that, ask her, you just go up to her and you say, are you feeling suicidal? And he said, I can't do that. And I said, why not? And this is like, I think the number one myth for people who are supporting someone who lives with suicidal thoughts. He said, because if I see that, I'll put that idea in her head. Oh, it's already there. No. Yeah. I said, she's already thinking it. And, and I said, look at her and she's over there, like nodding emphatically. Yes. Already thinking it. And I said, you are not, no one's putting thoughts like that. Asking someone if they're feeling suicidal is never going to put that thought in someone's head. If you're worried about it, they're already thinking about it. What it does is it creates a safe space for them to be open. Yes, because they can see, oh, here's someone who's not so scared of this. Yes, it's upsetting, right? Yes, we're afraid 
for the people that deal with these suicidal thoughts. But if someone's really willing to ask that question, it creates a safe space immediately. I mean, I guess depending on your, your phrase, right? Like one thing I had to teach, even my dad, I was like, you don't say things like you're not thinking of doing something dumb, right? Because I'm okay. like, no, it's not dumb. It's highly logical because I'm ruining my family's life. That's how I saw it for years. They deserve better. They will be better without me. Yeah. 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 It was like, yes, I know this will devastate them. But then I won't be here every day, causing them pain, hiding in my closet, avoiding everything, coming out and yelling because I'm just in a bad place. Them worrying, when's the next time mom's going to go to the hospital? You know, like all these things. It was like, I could see very clearly the negative impact that I was having on them. And for me, it looked like that was a net negative. I did not see that I was doing anything positive. I actually recently went back and looked through photos of all these years I've forgotten that were like lost on my computer. And I was shocked, Allison. I was like, oh my gosh, I took my kids to all these things. I did parties. I made all these fun foods on holidays. And it was like so reaffirming to me. They've come and told me, mom, you're a good mom, right? And I love hearing that. But there was something about going back over my life that I don't and remember. And being like, I was a freaking good mom. And especially with yes, you- everything that I had going on, it was so hard to drag myself out of bed, but I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. Your brain, I feel like you're, when you're dealing with depression, so your brain really is very hyper-focused on the feelings. And I have that with my anxiety because I deal more with the anxiety piece now. And so I'll yell too much or like, as you said, you go into those, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like, so it's almost an out-of-body experience in a way because you're like, whoa, that's not me, but it is you. And so I have thought that like, oh, my kids would have been better if they ended up with somebody else. And if I sit down with them in a logical moment and we talk about like, what, what do you want from mommy? What could mommy do better? They love what you're already doing. And um, so I think it's in a way that's kind of a gift that you were able to look at those and, and realize like, I'm a good mom. This kind of, for me, segues a little bit into what I really wanted to emphasize because I feel like there are a lot of people who have loved ones or family members that they care about that are dealing with um, suicidal thoughts, um, being depressed. Um, I was like you. I always, I, put, I call it putting on my happy face. And then I like eventually share with a boss or somebody like, hey, I've got depression. I'm having a depressed episode right now, I could really use some time to go do dot, dot, dot. And I remember her boss was like, no, you don't. And she thought I was crazy. And she's like, you're always happy. You're bubbly. You're outgoing. And it's like, that's a mask. That's what I want you to see. But deep down, as soon as I go home and I shut the door at my house, it's exhausting. Like I'm drained from doing that all day long. And then it just hits. What would be your advice, just like that dad? Was it the dad? His, yeah, it was a dad. What would be your advice to somebody who says, I have this loved one. What's the best thing I could do to support them as they're dealing with these feelings or these thoughts? I think the best thing, well, start, the best thing to start with is get educated because what we need is safe spaces. There have been people on my path 
who were safe spaces. And I don't put it lightly, like they literally saved my life. Even some of them didn't know, even before I was like ready to talk about what was going on, there were just people where I could be myself. I, when I went back to school, they, I did share with them. So my, my diagnosis changed now to back to depression, but at the time I shared with them that I had bipolar two disorder and they like a hundred percent, everyone was like, okay. And then moved on. Yeah. And they just let me be right. Nobody tried to fix me. Nobody told me that wasn't a real thing. Nobody told me, uh, I, again, my cute dad used to always say, have you thought about your family? And I was like, or how blessed you are. Those are things to eliminate from our vocabulary. If you want to help someone, don't ever ask them if they're aware of how good their life is, because that was a huge trigger for me. I was like, I have this amazing life and I can't even appreciate it. What a horrible person am I? I have great kids and I can't be a good mom for them. What a horrible person I am. You know, like it was like all of those things that to someone who's not dealing with depression or suicide, you know, seem like, <laughs> like, oh, well, if you, again, it goes back to that, right? You can think more positively, focus on the good in your life. Have more faith and be happier. Yes. But no, the contrary, and this is so counterculture. This is so against what we think we know is that we need to give safe spaces for grief, for depression, even for someone to say they hate their life and they want to end it. Again, like, and I'm not talking about if someone is in the middle of a suicide attempt, that's a whole separate theme, right? But if someone says like, I hate my life, I want to die. I don't want to wake up tomorrow. You want to know what the best, like I, this is something I had to teach my husband that sucks. And he's like, but what? No, because I hate that you're thinking that it scares me to death. We got to fix it. We got to stop it right now. Like he gets in this panic mode and I'm like, I know, but I need you to check those feelings at the door. And the response that I need, I need validation. And again, this is another education thing because people think, oh, well, if I validate, yeah, your life is the worst, <laughs> you know, then that means I'm agreeing with it. I'm saying, no, you're not saying, yeah, your life is the worst. When I say my life is the worst, you're saying, gosh, that's so hard to feel that way. That's that right. must be so heavy. That feels that seems like it would feel so dark and so hopeless. That would and be a we, hard thing to carry every day. Yes. Yes. We think that saying those things are going to make the person be like, oh, even you agree. Right. So now I'm definitely just, no, what it does is it validates me in my pain. And then you're a safe space. And then for some reason, I actually am willing to like think outside that little dark box that I'm in. You know, so that's what we need. We need people who are willing to sit in the dark. We need people who are willing to sit with grief, allow us to grieve, right? Someone has a miscarriage and we say things like, oh, well, at least you didn't hold the baby and bond with it, right? Like what? Or like, oh, they've been gone a whole year. Why haven't you moved on yet? Their baby must have been sick and it wouldn't have been a good life anyway, right? Like we tell people all these weird platitudes that are so invalidating. and sometimes. The best thing for someone to say is, I have no clue what to say to you. Mm -hmm. There's nothing I can say that can fix this. And I know you don't need me to fix it. Because what that does is it says to that person, I see you. I see that you are capable of living through this experience. 
You don't need me to fix your problem. When someone jumps in and tries to fix me, then that I'm, validates that you can't do it. Am I broken? What is wrong with me? You know, or I just want to come back and tell them, no, 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 no. Let me list off to you again, all the things that are wrong. And I have to reiterate it and relive that myself. Right. I don't have the energy for that. I just need people who are like, that sucks. Like that really, if you have nothing else to say, that's, yeah. I have conversations with people. Cause I get people who call me regularly. Uh, most of the time I don't even know them. Right. But they get my number from someone else and I just listen and I can't tell you, like, I just will repeat to them over and over. That is so hard. And I, to myself, think, do they realize I'm repeating the same statement over and over? Does it sound insincere? But they probably feel that they're heard. And that's exactly it. They never are like, would you stop repeating that to me? They're like, yeah. No one really sees that it's hard. I can't tell my sister this because of this. I can't tell my husband, you know, whatever. And it's just a matter. So what needs to happen? People from my side, right? We need to speak up. That's what it is. Why are my husband and I still married after all these years? Because I'm willing to talk about what I need and because he is willing to listen and change. Yeah, I was going to say that he he sounds teachable. And I think that that is a powerful um, support. Um, a, I guess, what's the right word? I'm totally having an ADHD moment because <laughs> my brain's totally like a log. But it's 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 a quality to, to be able to want to listen and then to, to learn, to be willing yeah. to open, to learn. Like, I don't know how to help you. So tell me how I can help you. Yes. And he'll um, even say that because his go-to is to fix it. Well, and that's me, traditional. Have worked up to tell me it's not that big of a deal to tell me all these different strategies, how we can work around it. And he is learning and he'll even catch himself. Oh, that's not validating. Okay, let me validate you. <laughs> like, I love that. Yes. I know I would just love your husband. That's awesome. He's he is a pretty amazing human. And here's the thing that I would say too is some people, I have had people just completely disappear in my life. And I think it's because they're scared and they don't know what to do. And we do that, right? We've all had friends who've gone through some major loss or heartache and and we haven't known what to do. And so rather than say the wrong thing, we just avoid. Yeah, because we don't want to hurt or we don't want to. Yeah. I, I, so I used to work at a high school and one of my teacher's aides was actually someone that went through a very traumatic thing. And if I use their name, you would probably know who it is. So I won't. Um, and I remember her coming to me one day and just saying, hey, Allison, will you be honest with me? And I was like, yeah, of course. And she's like, why do so many people not like me? And I was like, what? And she goes, they avoid me. They see me coming and they go the other way or my friends don't talk to me. And I said, oh, sweetie, they're just scared. They don't want to hurt you or add to what you've already been through. So they figure if they just don't say anything, then that's better. And that's not the case. It's not better. And um, so I think that's the first thing, like you said. So be willing to listen. Don't avoid. And then for those that are feeling those feelings, be willing to talk about it when you need to, to the people that like your family, your friend, your close support. And if you don't know what to do, just say, I don't know what to do. How can I help you? I, that is like one of the most beautiful questions I've ever had friends ask me, you know, because now, so now I, well, I go back and forth, but for a while there, I posted every day how I was that day. 
I was trying new treatments. I post how I was doing on my treatments. And I'll be very honest. I even had moments where I was like in the throes of depression and I would feel this really like overwhelming prompting. You need to have Blake. That's my husband. Take a picture of this and post it. Those are, they're hard for me to look at. It was really hard to share that. But those are some of the posts that I found people were like, oh, because we don't have a face for depression. We don't have a face for bipolar disorder. We don't have a face for a lot of these things because we have stereotypes, we have stigma, and we have a whole bunch of really good actors. Most of the people that are dealing with these things are incredible actors, right? We can put on a happy face. I can be feeling suicidal and I can go to a party and you will have no idea. No, right? to go with that real quick, we are running out of time, but I want that actually hit the chord with me. Have you found people that are able to see through it? Um, I'm pretty good at seeing through it. <laughs> yeah, I had a friend, so I was I, at something for my church. I was at a church event and I was, okay, I have the shotgun laugh as my friends used to call it because it's like, it, it just goes on and on and on. And I was all over, like over the top, happy giddy that night. And my friend came over to me and he says, you are not okay. This is not who I know. How are you doing? And it just hit me. This is actually someone I still very much have as a friend. And I looked at him and I'm like, really? And he goes, Allison, you're not okay. And it was the first time that I felt seen, that somebody saw what I was trying to hide. And that was powerful for me. And so I can imagine, like you said, like you, you can hide it. Like we're great actors. Yeah. I, I have a couple of friends that are good enough friends that have proven how safe they are time and time again. I don't know if they would see through it. I just find I can't lie to them, mm -hmm. but I just don't. And I think a part of me too, I can, I just turned 40 and I'm feeling exhausted in certain areas of my life. And I, <laughs> and that's been building over the last year or two, right? It's not like I turned 40 and this happened, but I am just like, I'm done. I'm so tired of putting on that happy face. There are times that it's just actually easier, right? Like if the focus, if I don't want to focus on me, I can be happy enough that we can focus on like whoever we're there for, right? right. Um, and I feel like that's okay. And if I'm in a place where I can't do that, then I just bow out. I just say, I'm not feeling well tonight and not coming. And I've done that. I even, well, I've like, done it too. I've organized like girls nights out that I backed out of because I didn't feel well, even as the organizer, right? You know, like just yeah. giving myself permission to say, I just don't feel well. And that's the thing I was saying too, is like when I'm being really honest on social media, then people know, right? So I can't yeah. show up at the party and be like, everything's so good, you know, because they're like, um, I saw what you posted this morning. And I'm like, well, okay. You know, and so sometimes I'll just, then I have to decide how am I going to show up? You know, and there are times too that I've had to tell people like, look, I know that you saw that, but here's, this is another thing when you're talking about what I need from other people, I need to be, and this is what, this is where see me, not the stigma really came from because I reached a point in my marriage where I was just, he was like, what do you need? And I said, I need you to see me and you do to see who I am. And I need you to remember that for you. I really need you to remember it for me because I've been lost for so many years. I feel like I can't find myself a lot of the time. And when I'm severely depressed and I'm thinking that I need to exit this life, I really don't see myself. I am. I'm not even thinking about that. Right. 
And so that's what I need. I need people in my life who know who I am and treat me as the person that I am. And that can mean honoring and validating where I'm at without being like, oh, why are you so broken all the time? Or, oh my gosh, this is a major crisis. We have to fix this right now, right? But just being like, oh, I see where you are today and I know who you are. Like, I know who you are deep down, right? Because really, like, I'm a pretty happy person. I'm a very positive person. I am a faithful person, right? Like, those things that I was looking for all those years, like, that's who I am. It wasn't that I needed more of that in my life. I just needed to give myself permission to not be okay. To have moments where life was hard. So um, we're running out of time, but Cheryl, thank you so much for being open and sharing your story because I'm sure there is a lot of people who will relate with this and find guidance. Um, For those that are listening, I'm going to put um, Cheryl's handle on my um, website and also some resources that she has mentioned and that I've mentioned. So if you'd like to learn more and become more educated, And for those of you that are considering suicide and have thoughts related to that, there will also be a resource of a phone number or website that you can reach out to. And for those that are living in Utah, we have our um, a safe app where you can go anonymously and get help and guidance um, because there is always someone out there willing to help. It's just finding the right fit for you, whether it's the therapist, the medication. It's it's a step by step process and it's something we fight every day. And um, Cheryl, thank you so much. Um, I really do appreciate it. And I'm so grateful that your story is where it is right now and that you've been able to get through almost 20 years of hard days and are able to still see that there is light, you know, shining through on those times and are helping others that are experiencing that too. So thank you again. And um, loved having everybody here. So, um, We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this new episode. And if you did, please leave me a review wherever you are listening. And if you could, I'd love it if you would share this episode with friends and others who might be interested in this topic. I look forward to having you join me in two weeks for the next one. The easiest way to know when I have a new episode is to subscribe. So go over there and click that button. Until that time, please get in touch. I love hearing feedback and getting to know my listeners. Seriously, it is like making new friends. You can get in touch by visiting my website at letyourheartgrow.com where you can leave comments or stop by my social media accounts. Come chat. Let me know what topics you would like to see covered in future episodes and let me get to know you better. Thanks again. And we'll see you soon.